Well, this morning we are not turning to Genesis. Uh, being the interim pastor, um, and actually this is the first day of my eighth month. That's hard to believe. Time flies when you're having fun. But, and it's been fun. But being aware of uh, being in a temporary position, uh, and there's other things I want to address from the Word of God. Uh, so we're going to take a break from the Genesis. We've gotten to the point, I think, where we can do that. Whether I get back to that, I'm not positive, just to see how the pulpit committee goes. But they're, they're working hard, and, and uh, anyway, we'll see. So I want to turn to Matthew chapter 16, an important passage, obviously. And my text is actually just verses 13 through 16, but I want to read beginning at verse 5 and down through 18 to get a little bit of the context. So when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you have little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. O Father and O God, Thank you that you broke our stony hearts and caused us by your grace to see the truth and to know the truth and to kneel before the truth and to embrace the truth that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Holy Redeemer. He is the one who was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. God of God. Light of light. And yet, truly man as we are, yet without sin, that he might represent us, that we might be your people. And in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Oh, how glad are our hearts and how rich we are in Christ. Lord, let us understand the truth of what we possess, that we are but broken vessels 
but we have a message which is of greatest, greatest importance that all should hear that you would gather your people from the ends of the earth knowing that Jesus is Lord. And so we pray in His name. Amen. Well, we saw last Sunday, and yes, this is connected. We saw last Sunday that God confirmed to Jacob or to Israel the promise He first made to Abraham to make the offspring of Abraham or the people of Abraham into a great nation, and He would give to them the land of Canaan. And then we also saw that the 70 people, the 70 in the family of Jacob, who came to live in Egypt, prophesied of people, of of God reclaiming people from every nation and making them into one holy nation. The fulfillment of which began on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. And we saw that Revelation speaks of this multitude that no one can number. Again, as God promised Abraham, they'd be like the sand of the seashore, like the stars in the sky. No one could, be, could number them, and they would be comprised of people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And so God's covenant with Abraham, the, the mystery of which is explored and, and made known in the New Testament, reveals that the church's most essential task is mission or kingdom expansion, that God's glory would cover the earth because Jesus is Lord of all. And so moments before his ascension, following the accomplishment of revelation of, of redemption, when he said on the cross, it is accomplished, when he died and was buried and rose again, as we just recited, just before his ascension, he promised this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And that would happen at Pentecost, of course. And you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. Why? Because in accordance with the prophecies, God's glory must cover the earth. So we also, my friends, as the church in the 21st century, long time since then, but yet we also are witnesses. We are to tell people who Jesus is and what he has done, that they know the truth. Jesus said in Matthew 24, this gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, that, and then the end will come. So the history of the church is the history of mission. It's the history of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom that all of God's elect would be brought into the church. So Peter's answer to our Lord's question when he said so profoundly, you are the Christ the Son of the living God, that is the very heart of the church's witness that the church is to present to the nations throughout all history. And it's why this church, it's the only reason really why this church exists here in Dallas, in Paulding County, so people hear the truth. So the elect are gathered in, they know, knowing that Jesus is 
the Son of God, the Lord of all. But we need to ask ourselves, do we truly understand the staggering implications of that claim? Because as a church, we must understand what Jesus was saying. Because if we don't, we certainly can't carry out that essential mission to be his witnesses. We'll become just a mere social club for our own comfort and enjoyment. Our worship and our prayers will be weak and ineffective and misdirected. Our love will grow cold. We become a, a lukewarm church like Laodicea. Well, Matthew tells us the occasion of this conversation, this discussion that Jesus initiated with his disciples. This wasn't just a random conversation. There was a reason for this question at this place. We need to pay attention to these details. Matthew tells us, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples this question. It's crucial to understand what this place was. Well, Caesarea Philippi was a beautiful city that sat at the foot of Mount Hermon in the region to the north of the Sea of Galilee. Now, in the days of the Romans, Caesar Augustus gave the city to Herod the Great. Herod the Great was, of course, that illustrious king who ordered the death of the infants, trying to destroy none other than Jesus, who asked this question. After Herod's death, his son Philip became ruler of that region. And to honor Caesar, who was considered a god, as you well know, he uh, renamed it Caesarea. But there was another city, Caesarea, so to distinguish it from that coastal city, he called it Caesarea Philippi. And so that city was a great city. It was a worldly city. It was a, it was a modern city, if you will, a world-class city in its day. Now, Mount Hermon is equally, if not more important, because, though I can only briefly just touch on this this morning, in Old Testament times, Mount Hermon was the region of Bashan, or Bashan. It was the place of the serpent. In Jewish literature not biblical literature, but extra-biblical literature. It was the place where the sons of God rebelled against Yahweh as described in Genesis chapter 6, which led, as you know, to God destroying the world by a flood, of course, in the days of Noah. So Caesarea Philippi, at the foot of Mount Hermon, was a place that had always been associated with false gods and rebellion against Jehovah. This is where Jesus asked his question. In Old Testament times, Baal was worshipped there. But the Greeks worshipped a god named Pan and renamed the city Peneus after their god. And there was a shrine there um, to their god. It was called Panion. Now, the Jews knew Mount Hermon as the gates of hell. So this, dear ones, was ground zero for this battle between Yahweh and Satan. That was promised back in Genesis 
chapter 3, verse 15. So it was in the sight of this glorious city of man, named in honor of Caesar, considered a god, right? And before the gates of hell, Mount Hermon, the region of demons, Jesus asked his disciples this famous question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the only thing that was certain is that the people were confused and uncertain. They said, well, maybe John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, maybe Jeremiah, maybe some other prophet. We don't really know. But it's interesting, their answers. It's quite revealing, actually, because these men all have one thing in common. What is it? They were prophets. So, the people who thought of Jesus as John or Elijah, whoever, they thought of Jesus as, well, an important person. He was a man sent from God. Remember, Nicodemus called him that, okay? Maybe even a prophet. And they had heard his teaching. He was a public man, a public figure. They had heard his teaching. And it was powerful, like the teaching of John the Baptist. And they had seen him do incredible miracles, like, like Elijah had done. And he was confrontational in his teaching, like Jeremiah or Amos or some other prophet. And he taught with authority. So he must be a prophet, the people thought. And so the crowds followed him. He was a good teacher. And so they listened to him. They had a high regard for him. They esteemed him as a man sent from God. But they didn't know who he was. And beloved, they weren't even close. Why? Why do I say that? Because the prophets were men, sometimes women, but generally they were people who pointed away from themselves to the Christ who would come. They were great men indeed. And they had an important role. They were foretelling and forthtelling prophets. They prepared the way for the coming of Christ, John, immediately, and the other prophets for years and years prior to that. But they were not the Christ. That's what John said. I am not the Christ. I have been sent before him. I must decrease that he might increase. The prophets were not the Christ. And more importantly, Jesus was not a prophet like they were. He was the fulfillment of all their promises. He was the one about whom they had prophesied. And by his words and by his works, he showed that he was the Christ who had now come. He had now arrived. But the people did not receive him. They did not recognize him. They were ignorant. They walked in darkness. They didn't know who he was. They had not a clue. And that ignorance was deadly to them. And it is to any of us who regards Jesus as a great man but doesn't know who he is. Maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's a good teacher. 
But if you don't know that He is Christ, the Son of the living God, the Redeemer and only Savior of sinners, you're lost. You're dead in transgressions and sins. In fact, it's not even possible for Him to be a great teacher if He was not the Son of God. Because a great teacher, a great teacher who is only a great teacher cannot say the things Jesus said and make the claims Jesus made. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, addressed this most powerfully. That was probably the second book I ever read as a Christian. Mr. Lewis said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse, said C.S. Lewis. Do you understand that? Jesus either told the truth regarding his identity and calling, or he was the chief of liars and a deceiver, a madman, a crazy man who should be locked up. You must make your choice. And those who will not affirm Jesus is Lord and will not fall down at his feet, crying out for mercy, are no better off because they regard him as a great moral teacher or leader. Because they do not know the only one who can deliver them from the sin and from the wrath of God. Is that anyone here? Anyone? Do you come to church because you're a good person? Or because you're a religious person? Or because that's what you've always done? Or your parents raised you that way? You esteem Jesus? You like some of these teachings? They're sort of cool? Maybe even hip a time, or maybe they're just kind of radical and you like that? But you don't worship Him as Lord and Savior, the Son of God? You regard His teaching, but you've never cried out for mercy? You don't think you need to be forgiven? Like that Who song from so many years ago? You may talk about Jesus, you regard him in some way, but he's essentially no different than, than, say, a Plato or a Socrates, a great leader, but just a man. That, dear ones, is not the heart-seeking faith that God requires. It is actually the defiance of God. It's the defiance of truth. It's Jeroboam. Remember Jeroboam who set up his own religion. It's Antichrist. If this is anyone here, you're lost and you will someday have to account for your life and your sins before the holy judgment seat of Christ. What will you do? What excuse will you give when you've heard the Word of God for so many years? 
Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's the promised Savior. He's the Messiah, the Redeemer, the one of whom Moses and the prophet spoke. He's the one who fulfilled all the Old Testament promises and prophecies. He's the Son of Man of Daniel 7, who was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. And He came to declare war against all false gods and all idols. Here they are standing before Martin Herman, the gates of hell. And so the church's witness that Jesus is the Christ is a declaration of holy war because he came to reclaim the nations and to take back what rightly belongs to Yahweh. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against the attack of the gospel, the attack of the Lamb, because the kingdom of God is at hand and the Son of God leads the church in the fight against the evil powers. Remember when Jesus sent out the 70 disciples to preach the gospel? 70, yes, just like the 70 in Egypt. And he sent them into the harvest with the message, the kingdom of God has come near you. And they came back. They were excited. They were pumped. They said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Our witness, the church's witness, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is a war cry, essentially, commanding people to, to, to forsake their idols, forsake their false religions, forsake their unbelief, forsake their sinful affections, that they might give honor and glory to the true and living God that they might know Him and know His love and know His forgiveness and be His people. Part of that vast number promised to Abraham. And Jesus is the Savior of the world, as John wrote. He said, you will be my witnesses where? To the end of the earth. And therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Because He is Lord of all the earth, Lord of all the nations. It worries me today that many have lost sight. Many of us, many of us American Christians have lost sight of the essential mission of the church. To be a witness to the world, to the nations, to the unbelievers, to the idols, idolaters, that Jesus is the risen King and that He has given God has given Jesus the nations as his inheritance. The church is a missionary body taking the gospel to the nations. We are the survivors of Isaiah 66. We are the ones who declare his glory. In Revelation 17 it says, They will make war on the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. 
the called and chosen and faithful with the Lamb are engaged in that war, the war of the Lamb against the idols. And so we must be confronting the lies and deceptions of Satan and the idolatry of the nations and the false teachers and their false religions. That's what Elijah did. That's what Jeremiah did. That's what Paul did. Paul walked into a Greek city named Athens. And he looked and behold, and what was it? Full of idols. And so what did he do? He preached Jesus. He preached the gospel of the kingdom. That is our warfare, dear ones. It's the word of God. It's the word of love. It's the word of Christ. That is our warfare. We must so love God and so love this truth that we will not be intimidated into silence before the hostile forces. That's what Satan wants. They want us to be quiet. That's what the principalities and powers want, just to be happy, just eating and drinking and being merry. As long as we're just like a social club, as long as we're just going along to getting along, as long as we just don't rock the boat, it's all good. But do we live as soldiers engaged in warfare or as civilians seeking after comfort and peace? In your hymnal, you notice I choose a lot of Isaac Watts hymns. Here's another one we haven't sung yet, I don't think. It's in your hymnal. Isaac Watts asks, Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own His cause or blush to speak His name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Being a witness is not the comfort and ease of civilian life. It's the struggle of the battlefield. It's prayer and proclamation and loving our enemies. It's serious business. Why do missionaries go into dangerous places where their lives are at risk? One of our partners in Africa, Eli's partners in Africa, about a week ago, his home was broken into and he was murdered for the gospel of the kingdom, for the faith that you and I believe. Why do they do that? Here is Peter standing before a glorious city named in honor of Caesar, a worldly city to honor a false god in the region of demons. And Peter says boldly, you are the son of the living God. Do you see that, what that, for what, that for what it is? That's a bold repudiation of idolatry and false religion. Later on, after Jesus ascended, Peter and John were out preaching, and they were commanded, stop. 
Stop teaching in this name. We did away with this name, they thought. Stop teaching in this name. And they said, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They were witnesses. And they had to testify of what they had seen and heard. We cannot fail. And so they defied any and all orders to cease proclaiming Christ or Jesus as Lord in Christ. They weren't about to give an inch to those principalities and powers who hate the name of Jesus. And so it was throughout history. Think of Luther in Germany. Stop it, stop it, stop it. No, here I stand. Calvin in Geneva. Knox in Scotland. Whitfield sent out to the fields because he couldn't preach in the churches. Edwards, warriors fighting for the glory of Christ and the truth of the gospel. Are we with them in that? Are we their heirs? Are we their sons and daughters? Will we proclaim Christ to our generation? Will we repudiate American idolatry? Beginning with our own hearts. What's, what's there? See, Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, He comes as an intrusion into human life to assault our idols. That's why the preaching of the kingdom always begins with the word what? Repent, as John the Baptist, and as Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn away, because the kingdom demands a new allegiance. A total change. Paul said if anyone's in Christ, he is sort of a a better person. No, a new creation. Jesus didn't come to make you a better you. Christ comes to shake you up and to change you at the core of your being as you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So will your chief allegiance the one that overrides everything else, be for King Jesus and His kingdom. John said, do not love the world or the things in the world. You can't love both God and mammon. You can't do it. You know, there's still a war against the Christian faith. The nations are raging against Jesus. I've seen it. I go to places where it's happening. It's happening where I'm going in a month. Pray for me in Nicaragua. It's not safe. But you know what? Our own nation is raging against Jesus. Many in the government, most in education, most in the media, uh, in education, everywhere you turn, There's rage against the Son of God. Jesus' name uses a curse. Does that not make you, does that break you hard or make you mad or do you something? What are we doing? You know, there's another major election season upon us. And it's sad when today's Christians in our country, we seem to put more hope in electing conservatives and in putting conservatives to the Supreme Court than we do in prayer and the proclamation of the Word. 
And I'm not speaking against those things or for those things. It's not a political message. It's to say that many Christians have more trust in the politics of Trump than they do in the gospel of Jesus to change our nation and the world. Did you notice just preceding? It's why I read it. Jesus' warning about the leaven, that is the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, they sought after an earthly kingdom and, and worldly power. When Pilate asked the Jews, as the bloody Jesus with the crown of thorns stood before them, as he asked the Jews, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests, leaders of Israel, said, we have no king but Caesar. The chief priests, the leaders of Israel, knew only worldly power. And it's tragic that many American Christians fall into the same error. Yes, we believe more in spreading the gospel of American exceptionalism than in the kingdom of God. And if so, have we not fallen into the trap of the Pharisees and Sadducees eating their leaven, so to speak, seeking and trusting in worldly power? But was it not the apostles' witness of Christ and the preaching of the gospel that turned the world upside down? And what about the reformers? What changed Europe? Okay, what made America great at its beginning? One foreigner came and made an observation. His name is de Tocqueville. It wasn't the government that made America great. He wrote, I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. In her fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there. In her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. In her democratic Congress and her matchless constitution, and it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. So said or so wrote to Tocqueville. We must fight the good fight of, fight of faith. We also must stand before the city of man and before the region of demons and boldly testify, boldly bear witness, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and call people everywhere to repent of their idolatry and their sinful passions, to embrace the love and glory of Christ, that they might live. One of my heroes in recent history is Dr. Machen, who founded my seminary and was the father of the OPC, 
He died way too young in 1937. And Dr. Machen said this, the responsibility of the church is to testify that this world is lost in sin, that the span of human life, nay, all the length of human history, is an infinitesimal island in the awful depths of eternity, that there is a mysterious, holy, living God, creator of all, upholder of all, infinitely beyond all, and that He has revealed Himself to us in His Word and offered us communion with Himself through Jesus Christ the Lord, and that there is no other salvation for individuals or for nations save this, but that this salvation is full and free, and that whosoever possesses it has for himself and for all others to whom he to whom he may be the instrument of bringing it, a treasure compared with which all the kingdoms of the earth, nay, all the wonders of the starry heavens, are as the dust of the street. An unpopular message it is. An impractical message, we are told. But it is the message of the Christian church. Neglect it, and you will have destruction Hate it, and you will have life. Let me tell you another stanza of that great hymn Isaac Watts wrote. He said, Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. When that illustrious day shall rise and all thine eye all thine armies shine in robes of victory through the skies. Thy glory shall be thine. And so the psalmist said, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory cover the earth. O Lord God, may that begin with us here as it has begun elsewhere since the day of Pentecost throughout all the world. May we be an army proclaiming the Word, fighting against idols and false religions, and not just a club for our own benefit and ease. Lord, we are on the battlefield, and we are standing before demons and before the city of man, and we have a power we know nothing about, a power to destroy that which is false, that which stands against the true God, because Jesus is King of kings, and He is Lord of lords, and His Word is a double-edged sword. We know that He has already won the victory. We have but to proclaim the truth, and all of your elect will come in. Will we choose beds of ease, or will we choose the discomfort but joy of the battlefield? Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.